Good evening, church. Well, I definitely want to thank the Lord. Um, praise him that uh, there's no stiff, stiffness to my back. I haven't really felt any pain here in a couple of days, so praise the Lord for that. <laughs> um, so with that, um, if you guys will open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, and we're going to start from verse 1, and we're going to work our way down to uh, verse 10. Uh, but the focal point of today's uh, passage will be 6 through 10. So um, if you're able, please rise for the reading of Scripture. Let me just say this is uh, the title of my sermon is uh, Countermeasures Against Danger. Countermeasures Against Danger. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 1, it reads that now the Spirit explicit, explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars who conscience are seared. They forbid marriage and demand an absence, absence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created, uh, oh, sorry, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. Verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the next to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. For this reason, we labor and strive because we put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Let us bow our heads in prayer once more. Lord, I just come before you and I just, and I've been praying for this, uh, praying about this and and I just ask you, Lord, use me. Use me. Let your word be clear and understood. Let your word be clear and understood. Lord, I just want your words to capture the hearts and minds of the saints who are here among these walls. I pray, Father, that that your word would capture the heart of those who do not know you. I pray, Father, that this passage that we're about to dive into, Lord, that we can take it with all seriousness. Because in my opinion, Lord, I don't think we do. In fact, I know that I've been wrestling with this because I don't think I do. 
But I thank you, Lord, for allowing me the time to study, Lord, and to prepare this message, Lord. And not just only that, Lord, but just the preparation of my own heart, Lord. For I see that the Apostle Paul is is really urging and really crying out for believers in his time and also future believers that they would take heed to what he is saying here in this passage, Lord. The sweat, blood, and tears, the anguish, the sacrifice, so that we will be informed of your truth and that we may live accordingly to God's will. So this evening, Lord, help us to not be distracted. But I pray that we will, or I should say that this word will be clear, clear and understood. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in your son Jesus Christ's name. All of God's people say, amen. You may be seated. I guess in that prayer, and in this passage, I fully, not, not fully, but I can grasp the feelings, that the heart and soul of what Paul is, is, is guiding and mentoring young Timothy here in this passage. In this letter, Paul spoke about, you got to fight the good fight, Timothy. You got to have the courage to stand against those who will err against the truth of God's word. There is a lot that what Paul has, has been doing in his lifetime. And he wants us to, to be obedient to God's word. But most importantly, he wants salvation for all men, for all women. He desires the same thing that God desires. And I, and I really do hope and pray that we will not miss what Paul has to say in this passage. And I pray and I hope that we don't miss that what God has to tell us concerning about this passage. So I, pr- I do pray that it will be a blessing unto you. Now, most of you may know that I have served as an airplane mechanic in the United States Navy. But during my service, during my time, my experience... And I don't want this to sound bad, but as an airplane mechanic, sometimes that wasn't always on the front of, uh, the, the forefront of my mind. I guess what I want to share with you is that there was one thing that was on the forefront of my mind, and that was, and that is the word countermeasures. Countermeasures. And if you don't know what that means, let me define that for you. Countermeasure is an act or plans to avoid the dangers, uh, to avoid the danger ahead or, or prevent or reduce injury. Let me read that again. Countermeasure is an act or plans to avoid the danger ahead or prevent 
or reduce injury. The Navy has taught me in warfare, just as there is, just as there is one side that develops codes, another side that seeks to break them. There is also one side that develops missiles to shoot down aircraft, another side that seeks to prevent such attacks. I have shared with you in my last sermon regarding the bombing of Pearl Harbor. There were warning signs of an intimate attack from Japan. Japan was known to gather intelligence on the United States bases and operations along the U.S. coast. General William Billy Mitchell warned the President of the United States that Japan will launch an unexpected attack on Hawaii. Sadly, all the warnings were ignored. And as a result, there was no countermeasures. No countermeasures to avoid the danger ahead or prevent or reduce injury. There was no plan of action. There was no strategy. The aftermath of that mistakes will be forever stained in blood in U.S. history. Likewise, the Bible warns us about intimate attacks on the church. The Holy Spirit warns us of a coming apostasy, a great falling away from the truth. That is, there are people inside the church that will leave sound teaching and essential doctrine behind. The Holy Spirit also warns us that a satanic spirit will energize an influence among the people to speak lies. According to verse 2, there are hypocrites seeking lies, uh, they're speaking lies and, and hypocrisy having their conscience seared. They are the signs of false teachers that have infiltrated the church to preach moral purity, yet practice moral failure. You see, church, the the dangers of the false teachers is that they read the Bible and then they tell you you, uh, what it doesn't mean. Or what what it, uh, sorry, it doesn't mean what it says. Let me repeat that again. The dangers of false teachers is that they read the Bible. They read the Bible. I don't want us to miss the point. When you go to Matthew chapter 4, we see that Satan knows the Bible as he was quoting scripture to Christ. So they read the Bible. Then they tell you it doesn't mean what it says. The false teachers will make restrictions commanding us to abstain from certain foods and forbid marriage that God created to be received with gratitude and thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In my last sermon, I shared a statement with you. And I heard this from a young pastor that fits very well with this passage. He said that, False teachers forbid what the Bible allows and allow what the Bible forbids. Let me read that again. False teachers forbid what the Bible allows and allow what the Bible forbids. So tonight, 
We will be examining verses 6 through 10, where Paul will provide a list of countermeasures for the church, but more specifically to the pastors of the church. This passage, in, uh, uh, in, in starting from verse 6 down to verse 10, the central ideal of this is that all pastors must exercise any biblical countermeasures against dangers. That all pastors must exercise any biblical countermeasures against dangers. Meaning, pastors, you must exercise the prescribed methods in the Bible to draw up a plan or a strategy, a defense, to avoid the dangers ahead and prevent and reduce injury to your brothers and sisters under your care. There are three countermeasures that we're going to look at here in this passage. And it must be present, or I should say, it must exist in the life of the pastors. All three must exist. The first countermeasure is that the pastor must pursue excellence. Must pursue excellence. This is the pursuit of excellence. Two, spiritual discipline. That is the second countermeasure. And then three, Pastors, you must keep your spiritual focus. Keep your spiritual focus. Those three countermeasures must exist in the life of a pastor. Without all three in existence, pastors, you are useless to your local church. And you are useless in the kingdom of God. I know that was rather strong. But when you read this this epistle, Paul is coming with strong words, with a strong warning. Because this is not something that we should be playing around with. This is eternity that we're talking about. Eternal. Let's jump right into chapters uh, in verse 6. In verse 6, Paul said to Timothy that if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of of the faith and and the good teachings that you have followed. It is here that Paul instructs Timothy on how to fulfill his calling. To fulfill his calling. And I just want to remind the church here that that look, that young Timothy here was appointed by God to be an under shepherd. He is appointed to be the pastor at the church of Ephesus. And one of the qualifications I want to point out to be a pastor is that he is able to teach, that he is able to teach. And why is that important? Well, the teachings that flow from a pastor, look, it, it, it must be clear. It must be understood. When the teaching is not clear and understood, it will only lead to error. It will only lead to error. And when, and when, whenever error is present, it leads people astray and to an even apostasy. So let me give you an example, a biblical example. Better yet, to look at the life of Christ on how he t- 
taught his message. He taught it in such a way that it was clear and understood. That it was clear and understood. You see, when Jesus instructed his disciples, once again, it was clear and understood. Now, I'm not going to go into too much details about it because we can read about this in any other gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I'm going to go ahead and pick out uh, Matthew, uh, the book of Matthew. When you read in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we see that, that Jesus taught on several different topics here. He taught on prayer, fasting, forgiveness, murder, adultery. And all this was clear and understood. You might be asking, well, how do you know that? Well, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, it reads that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching. One of the reasons that the crowds were astonished is because the teachings were were clear. They was understood. It was not complicated. It was not burdensome like the scribes. It was not burdensome like the scribes because in verse 29 it says that because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not not like their scribes. You see, church, when it comes to clear, for the message to be clear and understood, it, it actually helps to shed light on errors. It shed lights on errors. As a pastor's job, it is to expose error by teaching the truth. He must not remain silent about error or, and, and falsehood. And I think an excellent example of, of of seeing that is through the eyes of, of, of the Apostle Paul. Or rather what the Bible teaches about the Apostle Paul on, this, on that. Paul spent a great deal of time exposing and correcting false teaching and warning and, and warnings of the false teachers. In Corinth, Paul had to correct abuse of spiritual gifts. In the book of Galatians, there were false teachings concerning the law and work righteousness that Paul had to correct. And lastly, I just want to mention is to the Thessalonians. For Paul had to correct their lousy teaching regarding eschatology. And there was so much that Paul did that I just don't have time tonight to go through all of them. But looking at the life of of the Apostle Paul, let me read you in Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Paul said this, because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God, the whole plan of God. This means that Paul did not cease to teach the entire counsel of God. Paul did not did not stop. uh, Sorry, Paul did not stop to teach the positives and negative aspects of the Bible. Paul preached about love uh, love for God, compassion for souls. He preached about the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul preached uh, preached the scriptures. Paul preached uh, preached Christ in Galatians chapter 1, verses 28. For it reads that we proclaim him, meaning Christ. This is Paul saying this. Warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The Apostle Paul, 
in my opinion, is still an excellent example for pastors today. Sadly, not all pastors feel the same way. Some pastors, some pastors today will only focus on the positive aspect or the positive parts of preaching and teaching God's word, such as love, mercy, grace, when it comes to heaven and angels and forgiveness. Now, I know that the Bible teaches that God is love in 1 John chapter 4, verses 16, but we cannot ignore and neglect to teach, the, to, to teach his other attributes, such as that he is holy, that he is righteous, he is a jealous God, a just God. He is a God that, that judged the universe to whom we will all give an account to. There is an eternal hell, wrath, death, sickness. We have enemies like the devil and his demons. There are specific roles for men and women in the church that is designed by God. There is order, not chaos. There are warnings that all believers that must heed. But most importantly, there is accountability, accountability, accountability. Yet some pastors will avoid preaching these topics because they perceive their listeners don't want to hear about them. Or it is considered unloving and intolerant, especially on homosexuality and transgenderism. And some pastors believe that excommunication is sinful in itself. But the Bible teaches that the most loving thing a pastor, a pastor can do is preach the whole counsel of God. That is how a pastor protects the flock. That is how pastors feed the flock. And when a pastor refuses to teach, the, 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 uh, teach what the Bible teaches, you are not a good servant, as it says in verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ. That you will be a good servant of Christ. You see, you will be called a good servant when you are preaching and teaching the positive and the negative aspects of the Bible. You will be considered a good servant when your message is clear and understood. Let's take a moment to see what Paul is talking about when he, when he says, that you will be a good servant, and you will be a good servant. The word good suggests someone or something is admirable or excellent. Someone or something is admirable or excellent, while servant carries the idea of usefulness, of usefulness. This means that every pastor is called to pursue God with all excellence and be useful unto him, unto his kingdom. But how? How do we do this? How is this accomplished? Well, to do this, the second half of verse 6 tells us that pastors must be what? They must be nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching. The word nourished here is about feeding and digesting. 
feeding and digesting. Have you ever heard of the, the slogan, you are what you eat? I'm sure a lot of people have heard that, especially, you know, when we in the fitness world. Well, the saying, the saying expresses that food, the food that we eat plays a massive role in our energy levels, physically and mentally. So in the same way, we're looking at this from the spiritual sense or the spiritual a- aspect. Is that, and I'm going to take this from a, a negative approach here is that when we feed our minds with ungodly things, it plays a massive role in our spiritual health, physically and mentally. Physically and mentally. You see, without proper spiritual nourishment, Christians will be spiritually lazy. There will be a lack of spiritual motivation. We will not have the energy to serve in our local churches, in our communities. There would be no energy to preach and teach the word of God accurately because there would be a lack of concentration. So in the same way, when it comes to our physical bodies, we know that, look, we can't be eating desserts all day and every day. Why? Because we know that it will cause severe harm to our bodies, especially to our internal organs. If we were to eat desserts All day, every day, our life expectancy will dwindle. Our internal organs will fail. It will shut down. Because there is no nutritional value when it comes to eating desserts. Spiritually speaking, when pastors nourish themselves with the words of the faith and good teachings. They are feeding and digesting the necessary nutrients needed to be useful in God's kingdom. That is what Paul called Timothy to do here in his passage. That he must be in the pursuit of excellence to be effective in the kingdom of God. He must continue to what? To be nourished by the word. So he can get the proper nutrients to to stay focused, to keep concentrated. And I'll speak more of that later. But most importantly, he needs the spiritual nutrients in order to have spiritual energy. Hopefully it doesn't turn into something kooky over that. But but you got to have that spiritual energy. So with that said, the question we, may, we should be asking is that what do we do with the spiritual energy that is, that's, that's stored in our spiritual bodies? That's the next question, because we can't just sit here and just have this spiritual energy being stored and stored, because otherwise we're just going to end up being uh, uh, um, fat little sheeps. I don't know. I hope nobody doesn't take it to offense to that, but it happens, Right? When we do not expand that energy, what does our, our physical bodies do? It stores, it stores that energy and it turns it into fat. So in the same way, in a spiritual sense, that's exactly what's taking place. I hope I didn't offend anybody on that. <laughs> so let's look into verse 7 because it's going to tell us how we use that energy. 
It says that, but have nothing to do with pointless and silly mess. Rather, train yourself in godliness. You see, when Paul says, but have nothing to do with pointless and silly, silly myths, he is referring to the false teachers that forbid marriage and eating of certain foods in the church in the previous passage, specifically in verses 4 and 5. Why is that? Well, these teachings and others were void of, of, of scriptural truth, of scriptural truth, meaning there is no nutritional value in that. There's no nutritional value in that. And therefore, it needed to be rejected. Anything that does not have nutritional value in a spiritual sense, we are to reject it. For Timothy, this involves rejecting the silly myths that was going on in the church of Ephesus. And Paul gives an alternative Thank you. Um, to myths. He basically is telling Timothy, look, Timothy, you are to train yourself in godliness, to train yourself in godliness. Do not have anything to do with the silly myths, but train yourself in godliness. Now, godliness doesn't just happen overnight. Now, when Paul told Timothy to train himself, Well, let's look at the word itself. Now, the word train can be translated as exercise or discipline. And the word godliness is a life that revolves around God, that revolves around God. So with that said, it it, it really comes down to the question I put is what exactly is Paul calling Timothy to do here? Well, Paul calls Timothy to live a disciplined life that pleases God. To live a disciplined life that pleases God. A disciplined life involves the word of God and constitutes the reading, study, prayer, memorization, and meditation of scripture. If pastors neglect this spiritual discipline, they will not have the power to overcome the resistance of sinful nature. They will not have the power to overcome demonic influences whose aim is to always separate the Christians from the kingdom of God or to stunt the spiritual growth of brothers and sisters in the church. I want to pause there for a minute because that's very important. A disciplined life involves the word of God and it constitutes what it constitutes, the reading, the studying, the the prayer and the memorization and the meditation of God's word. Let's take memorization for an example. Now, memorization enables us as believers, as Christians, to keep the word of God constant in our minds, making it possible to react to all of life's circumstances according to God's word, to God's word. There have been many of times that when sharing the gospel and engaging in, in, in these talks is that people think that this is a game when you're, when you're talking about the gospel or they don't take it serious enough. And so one of the scriptures that I remember uh, memorizes Hebrews chapter 10, verses 31. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
I want them to understand something that, look, although that you may be speaking in front of me and I am a, a, a human being just like you, but there is a vast difference between you and me is that I have Christ and you do not. And if you do not have Christ, by the time that you pass away from this physical life, then you will be met with the eternal God. And if you do not have Christ in your life, oh, what a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For God will, will, will for all eternity, for all eternity, you will face his wrath. And I want them to understand the seriousness of that. That, you ha- that as long as you draw breath right now, that you can be with me, with Christ in heaven. That you don't have to experience his wrath. Always keep that in the forefront of my mind because every, uh, almost every single time, we'll say eight out of ten times, that people think that hell is a joke. They think that God is a joke. The second discipline is that of prayer, of that of prayer. You see, our prayers are a spiritual union with God through thanksgiving, adoration, supplication, petition, and confession. Prayer is where God meets us where we are. God comes alongside us to to lead us into a deeper relationship with them. And it is not motivated by guilt. It is not motivated by guilt, but is driven by his love. Prayer changes lives. Prayer changes us. Prayer changes people. And I bring up prayer because even myself, I do struggle. I do struggle with it because there's outcomes that I want to see happen. And sometimes those outcomes doesn't really seem like it's going to be a a desirable outcome. And it gets frustrating. Even in the midst of troublesome times, bad circumstances. I remember crying out to God. It's just like, Lord, I'm, I'm doing everything that I can. But what can I do? I'm, I'm, I'm being obedient. I'm trying to do all that I can. But it seems like nothing isn't working. I know what that feels like. And I'm sitting there crying out to God. I, I didn't care at that moment. I cried out to God in the middle of a park. And I didn't care who was, who was listening or who was watching. But I felt like that prayer was my only means to really communicate. I even communicated to God. I'm just like, God, I'm, I'm all alone. I'm here in Sacramento. There's not a good church that's out here. No one that teaches your word. I'm here away from my friends, my Christian friends. I miss my best friend, Steve. I really felt alone, and I let God know that. And one of the things that he, 
that I know that it was God. It was just that night when I fell asleep and I and and I was dreaming. Nothing, nothing special, nothing out of the ordinary, but I I, I remember it just like yesterday when it happened. I just see this this big old tree, and it was this light that came behind this tree, and it was this gigantic, beautiful tree. And I laid by that tree, and I felt comfort. Comfort. I felt peace. I felt like I wasn't alone. And when I woke up, it's just like I thank the Lord for that. And I'm just like, Lord, there's there's a plan and there's a purpose, and I must continue to run the race. Prayer is very powerful. God does listen. And I understand that his, 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 his look, when it comes to God, he answers in three ways. Yes, not yet, and no. And if he says no, he's saying it for your benefit. Don't take it that God hates you or he doesn't love you or he doesn't care about you. God knows what's best. Prayer is powerful. Um, moving on. Pastors, 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 pastors. Do not neglect your spiritual discipline. Do not neglect your training. God has infused you with his power. And with that power, it must be used for training, for the spiritual disciplines. You must use it when it comes to reading, when it comes to studying, when it comes to prayer, when it comes to meditation of God's word. Use it to its fullest. I got a bit of a a side note here. Um, When it comes to training, I think we as um, the flock we need to give grace to the pastors when it comes to shepherding. And the reason why I say that is that the shepherds do not hold all the answers. They don't. Are they going to make mistakes? Yes. They're human just like any one of us. But we shouldn't hold grudges against them. We shouldn't be angry against them. Especially when pastors are like, I am so sorry. Um, you know what? I'm, I'm going to spend some more time to meditate on this. I'm going to take more time to study this. I'm going to take more time uh, to do what is necessary so this will never, ever happen again. They're in a training process. They're all, we're all continuously in a training process. And all of us are going to make mistakes. We're going to make brothers and sisters mad. We're going to make them upset. We're going to give the wrong advice. And sometimes even when it comes to scripture, we're going to misinterpret something. And people are not going to like that. But to the pastors, they're training every day with us. Look, when it comes to Pastor Steve or Pastor Josh and Pastor O'Brien, look, as far as from what I know, Noah, this is their first time ever running a church, having a building that God has given to them 
for the worship of God? Are there going to be unknown variables when it comes to the building? Yes, because they don't know. They're doing their best to know all the, the ins and outs when it comes to the building, but they're not going to know every single detail. So we got to be patient with them, especially in the area of finances. So the, the, the elders are going to look at something as like, look, this is priority number one. This is going to be priority number two. This is going to be priority number three. And let's be all in agreement to that. But I think that when it comes to, to training, we need to give more grace to especially our shepherd elders. Now, moving on. In verse 7, we know that, the, that when the pastor receives the proper nutrition, the proper nutrition, it is vital to be used for training. It is vital to be used for training. So what's next on the list is spiritual focus, spiritual focus. In verse 8, it says that for the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial for every, uh, in every way, since it holds promise, to, uh, holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You know, in ancient Greek and Roman culture, uh, highly value physical, uh, f- uh, yeah, physical fitness. And every major town or city would have, would have, a, would have had a gym. Scholars believes, uh, believed at this time that the people of Ephesus spent a great deal of time and money, uh, money when it comes to training athletes and, and to hold special events and athletic competitions. Both cultures had many athletes, and these athletes would commit themselves to a grueling training program. Why is that? Well, they had one goal in mind, and that is to be the first to cross the finish line in the race, to cross the finish line of the, of the race. I quickly want to point out some, to point out the, uh, some biblical analogies when it comes to sports in the Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 26, it reads that, So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. This passage contains a reference to shadow boxing. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says that, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses, uh, of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that is so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. This verse contains a reference to a race. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, it says, don't you know that runners in a stadium, <clears throat> excuse me, in a stadium all, all race, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way to win the prize. The Apostle Paul, when it comes to this passage and everything, it, it, it involves this, this race to get to the finish line, that there's the prize. And that's exactly what these athletes are doing in, in, in the Greek culture and in the Roman culture, they're running to get that prize. That is their focus. The Apostle Paul challenged Christians to run in such a way to win the prize. You see, what Paul has in mind here, that we must have a spiritual focus, that we must have priorities, that we must also have a program uh, uh, before us to help us to stay 
spiritually focused. Now, I just want to point out that this is not an advertisement for the latest health training program here. But Paul's point here is that training for godliness is superior to physical training. You see, physical training has its limits to the athlete. The number of years of physical training has some value. But unfortunately, one day, the energy and agility uh, agility of these athletes will diminish. They will diminish. And the goal of winning races will be out of reach. But when you train for godliness, that is a different story. To train in godliness is beneficial in ways that surpass the benefits of physical training. As Paul said, godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You see, physical training is undoubtedly valuable, and we must care for our bodies. After all, I just want to point out that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and so we should eat and exercise well. But nevertheless, any physical training falls short compared to your training in godliness. Pastors are called to train in prayer, to train in God's word when it comes to fasting, when it comes to worshiping, when it comes to sharing the gospel. You see, with that kind of, with that kind of training, you will make all kinds of gains in godliness. And that will endure forever. Although godliness does not make this life the most comfortable, the most satisfying, or the easiest, but undeniably, godliness is the only guarantee for a profitable life which is to come, which is to come. Personal fame offers nothing for the life to come. Achievements offer nothing for the life to come. Genealogies offer nothing for the life to come. And lastly, worldly success offers nothing for the life to come. The promise of verse 8 provides the goals for Christian life and ministry. Pastors, you need to stay spiritually focused on the plans of God. You got to keep your focus. In verses 9 and 10, it reads that this saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. For this reason, we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. This section of this section of scripture emphasizes two essential aspects of God's character here. One, that he is the living God. He is the living God. Two, that he is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. Salvation. Salvation has always been an essential subject when it comes to this letter. The epistle of Timothy. The first of Paul's trustworthy sayings is mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15. It says that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of, of, of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Salvation. 
salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. It says that, first of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings, and all those who are in authority, so that they may lead a tranquil, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. It is here that Paul calls for the church to pray for all kinds of people. For what? For salvation. For salvation. In First Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it reads that this is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He again, Paul, introduces the theme of salvation. The theme of salvation. Paul does, Paul does this because the teachings of false teachers have spread throughout the church. Their false teachings have created cliques that no longer reach the people for their, uh, in their local communities. The false teachings have called for withdrawal from the world. And so once more, once more, once again, Paul corrects this by declaring that God is the Savior for all people. Now, when Paul says the Savior of all people... He doesn't mean that all men are saved in a, in a universalistic idea. Scripture makes it clear that Jesus is the only way. In John 14, 6, it, says, it reads that Jesus told them that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one Savior for all men, and that is Jesus Christ. And lastly, I want to point out what Paul says here. Especially of those who believe. Jesus' work is adequate to save all, but only effective in saving those who come to him by faith. Only by faith. What Paul is telling young Timothy here. He's saying to Timothy, he's like, look, Timothy, keep your focus on the God who has saved you. Keep your focus on the God who has saved you. That will enable your brothers and sisters in Christ to imitate your example. Your example. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul said that imitate me as I also imitate Christ. The central idea of this passage here is that all pastors must exercise any biblical countermeasures against dangers. For that to happen, three things must be present. They must exist. There must be the pursuit of excellence, spiritual discipline, and to keep your spiritual focus. When these three countermeasures are not present, it will be impossible to make any countermeasures against any dangers. Remember the mistake 
that took place at Pearl Harbor. When you don't key to the warnings and you fail to make a plan and a strategy, we see the aftermath. We can go to where the aftermath is, the ships that are buried under the seas, the men and women who died in service for the country. Likewise, if we can feel that same effect, then we must feel that same effect when it comes to the spiritual realm, when it comes to the kingdom of God. Although this is specifically to the pastors, and although this epistle is, 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 is a pastoral epistle, but like I just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, church, we need to do the same thing. It's not just the pastor's duty. It is the duty for all of us that we should be protecting one another, that we should also carry the same countermeasures as that of the pastors. It must exist in all of us because the point needs to be made. It's just like, then what are we doing? Because we are no good to our local church and we will be and we are definitely no good to God's kingdom. We are utterly useless. As I'm reminded that when Pastor Steve spoke on the, the parables of that of the talent and the one person that had that one talent did nothing. The Holy Spirit warns us that there's going to be an intimate, uh, a, a, a intimate uh, danger that's going to come. There's going to be apostasy that's going to take place in the church. And it, and it has been going on since the day of Christ. And it's still going to go on until his second coming. That there are going to be people that are going to teach false doctrine in the church. So let us also hold those three kind of measures in our own lives. In conclusion to all this, the necessity for training in godliness must be taught and urged among believers. Pastors must encompass word and deed and demonstrate the love of God and man and trust in God. Trust in God. Trust in God the way that, that young David trusted in God when he went up against Goliath. Who he said, I'm paraphrasing, is that who is this man who defiles the living God? The living God. We do not serve a dead God. Pastors must set the scriptures before the people and encourage and, and encourage a response from them. Church, this pastors urge diligence, and commitment. This, pastor call, uh, this passage calls for faithfulness to sharing the gospel and encouraging brothers and sisters to do the same. The gospel is the only way to salvation through Christ Jesus. Let us go to our Lord, Savior, in prayer. 
Lord, I thank you so much for this message. I thank you so much for this word, Lord. And I just pray, Father, that, that for every believer, Lord, that we carry those countermeasures, <laughs> the counter, those countermeasures, that we are always in pursuit of excellence, that we are spiritually disciplined, and that we remain spiritually focused. Because I don't want to go into eternity knowing that I could have shared the gospel message to a stranger who do not know you. I don't want to go into eternity without helping my brothers and sisters who are in need and perhaps they misunderstand scripture or, or, or wherever the case may be. I just want to be an encouragement to them. I just want to love them. But also I know that if it's permitted, Lord, that I will admonish them in love and in grace for in the same way that you have shown your love and grace towards me. Lord, I just pray, Father, for those who do not know you, Lord. I just pray, I just pray Father, for, for their salvation. I pray, Father, that you will open up their hearts like you did to Lydia in the book of Acts, Lord. I pray, Father, that you will supernaturally uh, convict their hearts, that they will cry out to you in need of a Savior. Lord, I pray for our missionaries who are out there who are not having the comforts, the comforts that we have here in the U.S., but they are out there, Lord, witnessing and preaching a gospel, going to the most uh, uh, dangerous places in the world so that they can fulfill what you have called them to do, Lord, to reach to, to the unreached people group who are out there, Lord. I pray, Father, that we do not lose sight on salvation that we do not lose sight on salvation when we come to church. I pray, Father, that we do not lose salvation when it comes to our families, when it comes to the people that we work, or the strangers that we might meet in the supermarket. I pray, Father, that whatever that, that we, the nutrients that you have given us, Lord, I pray, Father, that we will utilize that in training, Lord. Help us to call to remembrance the things that, that, uh, that your words that have been put inside us, Lord, so that your name will be proclaimed and that your name will be praised. And I pray, Father, that the enemy does not distract, deter the mission at hand. Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we give you all the praise and glory. And we pray this in your son Jesus Christ's name and all the God's people say, amen.